A committed Christian is consumed with God's glory. God allows our lives to be turned upside down and sifted in order to teach us to depend on Him alone. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd open your Bibles to John, John chapter 13, we're going to spend uh, today, Lord willing, in the last few verses. We're in the last week of Jesus' life on earth. As most of you know, that's called Passion Week. Pascal means either strong emotion or to endure suffering. And those of you who know anything about the final week of Christ's life, it was a great deal of strong emotion and a great deal of suffering. This was the week, ultimately on Friday, where he went to the cross to um, die for the sins of the world. The setting for this particular lesson, Jesus and his disciples are in an upper room, a second story, um, uh, probably commercial building, uh, to celebrate the Passover. They've, the disciples, Peter and John, arranged for this room, and they're sharing a Passover meal. And he's just announced that one of the 12 who've been together almost every day for three years, they know each other extremely well, and Jesus dropped this bombshell and says, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples are blown away. They're confused. They're almost speechless. They know each other very well. They can't imagine who it is. And they go around a circle and say, surely not I, surely not I. They assume it would have to be an involuntary betrayal because nobody would betray the Lord of glory deliberately, right? And Jesus finally identifies Judas by handing him a morsel uh, kind of a code that he had given John. He said, when I hand the morsel to this one, this is the one that's going to betray me. And then he dismisses Judas and says, what you do, do quickly. So Judas, who is immediately possessed by Satan, he does what he does. He goes to the chief priest. He's already had a conversation with him and arranges for a time to betray Jesus. The reason that it had to be done on the sly is Jesus was always surrounded by crowds. And the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders who wanted him dead, couldn't arrest him in the middle of a crowd because they would be mobbed and stoned. So they had to do it when he was not near crowds. And Judas says, look, I'm on the inside. I know when he's not with crowds, I'll ID him for you. And most of you know that that occurred in a few hours in the Garden of Gethsemane when all the crowds were in bed. So he leaves the 12 and the traitor is gone. There's 11 left. And uh, the betrayal's underway, and now Jesus is going to spend chapters 14, 15, 16, making some of the most dramatic promises and instructions to his disciples, which includes you and I. And he, chapter 17 is his great prayer to the Father, that the Father in heaven would make those promises come to pass in the lives of his disciples, which includes you and I. These promises not, are just not for the eleven. Now, he's just told the disciples very soon that he's going to die for the sins of the world. They're having trouble with that. They're very anxious. They're very despondent. Their future, their hope, everything that they have been working for for three years 
is tied up in the presence of Christ, and now he says, I'm going away. It's like you're five years old and your mom and dad says, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't come. And you're five. Your whole world is your parents. And when they say, I'm going away, and you can't come, you fall apart. Well, that's what the 12 are doing. They're very despondent, very anxious, very uptight about that. Verse 31, let's pick up the narrative. Therefore, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, quote, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him immediately. If you've noticed, the word glory or glorify shows up five times in two verses. You think that would be a theme, right? Pretty significant imperative going on here. So here's our principle. A committed Christian is consumed with God's glory. A committed Christian is consumed with God's glory. So what does glory mean or glorify mean? It means to reveal. It means to disclose. It means to magnify. It means to highlight. It means to put on display. Put on display what? It means to put on display the eternal, infinite attributes of God. So Jesus, who is God, is going to reveal the attributes of God, and he's going to put them on brilliant display on the cross. The cross is the mechanism of glorifying both Jesus the Son and God the Father. And of course, we look at that and we say, how in the world does the cross bring glory to the Father and the Son? Because from a human standpoint, the cross is humiliating. It's agonizing. It's a disaster, right? It's a shameful way to die. It's a painful way to die. It's a disgraceful way to die. The only people that were crucified were career criminals or enemies of the state, enemies of Rome. That's about it. Common citizens were almost never crucified unless you were considered an enemy of the state or you were one of the worst criminals. But the heaven's point of view on the cross is very, very different from earth's point of view of the cross. From heaven's point of view, the cross was the greatest embodiment of divine glory. The perfect character of the Father, the perfect character of the Son were put on brilliant display at the cross, like a diamond under a spotlight. Have you ever gone shopping for diamonds? I know you might have done one time when you were young and dumb, right? And you walk in, and and they're very, very together. They've got it together. They pull out the diamond, and they spread this black cloth. And they take the diamond, and they put it there, and it's under this brilliant spotlight. I mean, you could burn your hands up. That spotlight is so bright, you know. And they put it there, and it goes, shoo, and it just dazzles, right? It just dazzles. By the way, it'll never look that good again. Just what it is, right? So the cross highlights the glory of God, the attributes of God, the perfections of God, in the same way that a brilliant spotlight lights up a diamond and brings forth the light from that diamond. The cross reveals more of God's attributes than any other event in history. What does the cross highlight? It it highlights and reflects and, and makes visible God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, His power, justice, holiness, Righteousness, wrath, forgiveness, patience, goodness, kindness. I mean, you run out of words trying to describe the perfections of God 
that are made visible only through the cross. God's, for example, God's infinite power was revealed at the cross. The spiritual powers that rule the world, sin, Satan, demons, and death, were defeated at the cross. God's holy justice was revealed at the cross. He poured out his righteous wrath on his innocent son. Jesus, the innocent one, was treated by his heavenly father as if he had committed every sin of every human being who ever lived past, present, and future. God, Jesus satisfied God's justice when he paid the penalty for our sin by dying in our place. God's faithfulness was demonstrated through the cross. Think about it. When did God promise a Savior? Genesis 3. The cross was the fulfillment of that promise. You had to wait a few thousand years, but God always keeps his word. And above all else, the cross displays the love of God. 1 John 4, 10. John is the apostle of love, and you can really see that here. He says, quote, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation means satisfaction. Because Jesus' death satisfied God's righteous wrath against sin, God could display his grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness to us because his holy justice had already been met through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Christ's death on the cross was the greatest work ever done in the universe. His death defeated Satan, destroyed sin, satisfied the justice of God, redeemed sinners from death and hell. Jesus' death means that in the future, the entire broken universe, which is consumed with futility and entropy and disease and death, the entire broken universe is going to be restored back to its Garden of Eden state. At the beginning of Scripture, we have God and man walking together and woman in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with Jesus. You go to Revelation 20, what do you see? New heaven and new earth and a garden. And man and woman and Almighty God are walking together in the garden. So the cross makes possible for God and man to reconcile and to live together forever in heaven, just like they did in the Garden of Eden. So the cross is essential, and it is glory, and it is great beauty from God's point of view. God redeemed his people, practically speaking. Why did God redeem us? Well, he did love us, clearly, but he did it so he could put his attributes on display through you. He saved us so that his love shines through us and the world would see the attributes of God, his love, his justice, his forgiveness, his grace through you as his children in the same way that Jesus glorified God by revealing the attributes of God. The Father saves us so that we can be the mechanism through which God will be seen by the world and people can come to know the Savior through us. Paul writes about this, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He says, so, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Not some things for the glory of God, do all. By the way, just a quick check. If you're involved in an activity that God can't look on and smile, 
you might want to think maybe you shouldn't be doing that activity because he says, do all for the glory of God. By the way, there's nothing in this world you can do. There's no activity that you cannot do for the glory of God. You can brush your teeth for the glory of God. And by the way, when you do that, your neighbors will bless you, so brush your teeth, right? I mean, that, that's kind of basic stuff, right? Galatians 6.15 says, 14 says, but may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were made to boast only in Christ, not ourselves. See, only God's glory is worthy of our worship and praise. Jesus lived for God's glory, and so must we. Ultimate satisfaction and ultimate joy are never found in anything other than God himself. You know, when you talk to young people, they believe that ultimately if I just get the right education and the right career and the right amount of money and the right prestige of the good job and I marry the right person and I have, you know, healthy children that always obey me and, and my health holds up, then my life will be satisfied, and then I will get it. It that you crave for meaning and purpose and satisfaction is God himself. Nothing else will satisfy. The rest of this joint is mud pies. It's just mud pies. You can try eating them, but I'm telling you, if you add a few mud pies, it doesn't take more than one. You say, you know something? I think that chocolate chip cookie mom made is probably better. Well, you know, God has a banquet for us. All right. Transition with me. Verse 33. Little children. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Little children. I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here's the principle. A committed Christian takes the initiative to love God's people with God's unconditional sacrificial love. A committed Christian takes the initiative to love God's people with God's unconditional sacrificial love. Jesus uses a very interesting term. He's talking to the disciples that are already nervous and anxious because he says, I'm going. And he calls them little children, little children. The Scots call a little child a bairn, bairn, a born one. It literally means a born one, and it's a diminutive title. And it refers to a young boy, young girl. It's a term of affection. It's a term that a parent would use, little children, with a young child that they obviously are extremely fond of. This is the only time in Scripture where Jesus calls the 12 or the 11 little children. Now, John, in 1 John, uses the term little children seven times. He obviously remembered what Jesus said at that point. Now, Jesus knows that they're anxious because he's told them he's going away. And he's told them even worse that where I'm going, you can't come. Now, that physical separation was going to be permanent. He was going back to heaven. They did not know that yet, but that's where it was. So he affectionately is trying to um, love them and reassure them. And he gives them a command. And he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, this commandment of Jesus has been called the 11th commandment. Someone says, how many commands are there? You fool them and you say, there are actually 11. This is the 11th one. A new commandment, another commandment. 
Now, the Decalogue, Deca means 10, that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai is the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. By the way, the command to love in Scripture is not new. It's an old command. The Shema of Israel, the basic creed of Judaism, the command is the command to what? Love God with everything you are and everything you have. What does Deuteronomy 6, 4 say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is Howard God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. Now, this is the vertical relationship between God and his people, this vertical love relationship. Later on in the Mosaic Law, he... God commands a horizontal love relationship between his people and their neighbors. Leviticus 19.18 says, quote, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and the authority for that command is what? I am the Lord. By the way, when you read Exodus and Leviticus, it's very common for God to give a command, and immediately following the command, he says, I am the Lord. So the basis for the command is Who's giving it? The authority for the command is the Lord. And by the way, that word Lord is all caps in your scripture. That's Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God who is the ruler of the universe. It's on his authority that he says, I want you to love your neighbors yourself. As he's talking about the horizontal relationship. Now, the standard of love for the vertical relationship is love the Lord your God with all everything you are and everything you have. The standard of love for the horizontal relationship is Love your neighbor like you love yourself. I God obviously presumes that you love yourself, right? It's a human standard of love, and yet we fail in it all the time. How many people do you know that routinely love others more than themselves? Almost everyone does what? Watch this out for number one. No matter how much they love, they're at the head of that list of who's going to get loved, right? Above all else. So the command to love wasn't new. Love God, love each other. What is new is the standard by which love is going to be measured. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So the standard of love, the bar that we must measure up to, is to love like Jesus loved us. So how does Jesus love us? There's a hymn called The Love of God that tries to describe God's infinite love. And the last verse paints a vivid word picture. It says, could we with ink the oceans fill? Think about the oceans filled with ink. And were the skies of parchment made? The whole sky is parchment. Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man ascribed by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of Jesus is eternal. It's infinite. It has no beginning. It will never end. Jesus' love is unconditional. Which means you can't earn it even better, you can't lose it because you didn't earn it in the first place. Jesus loves us based on 
who he is, not what we have done. The love of Jesus is always prior. The only reason we can love is why? Because he first loved us. We were created to be loved by Jesus and to love him in return. Now, I want you to know when, they, when, when the Lord uses the word love, he's not talking about a warm feeling in your tummy or your heart. That might be tachycardia or maybe you had something for dinner you probably shouldn't have had, whatever it is. It's more than emotions and it's more than just talk, talk. It's more than words. Love is a commitment of the will to bless and benefit the one who's loved. And that commitment results in action, not just talk. In 1956, Lerner and Lowe, playwright and composer, produced perhaps their most famous musical named My Fair Lady. I don't know if you ever saw it back in the day. The heroine, Eliza Doolittle, is sick of love that is only expressed in words. Now, the play is set in London, obviously. She must be from Missouri because she tells her wannabe boyfriend, Freddie, show me, show me. She says, words, words, words. I'm so sick of words. I get words all day through, first from him, now from you. Is that all you blighters can do? Don't talk of stars burning above. If you're in love, show me. Tell me no dreams filled with desire. If you're on fire, show me. Do something with your love that is visible, actionable, not just tuck, tuck. See, love may not begin with action, but it always results in action. Back in the day, Elvis Presley once sang a song written by Willie Nelson called, You Were Always On My Mind. You probably sang it to each other more than once, right? <laughs> and the first re word reads, this guy's making excuses, by the way, just I'll tip my hand. He says, maybe I didn't love you. You can hear Willie croaking this out now. Maybe I didn't love you quite as often as I could have. Maybe I didn't treat you quite as good as I should have. If I made you feel, oh, second best, Girl, I'm sorry I was blind. You were always on my mind. You were always on my mind. Here's the clue. The ones you love can't read your mind. But they can see your actions. Jesus' love was far more than just thinking about us in heaven. Jesus didn't stay in heaven and said, People, you were always on my mind. I was thinking about you. He took extreme action to demonstrate his love. The love of Christ was costly. It was not convenient. It was personal. He came to earth for you by name. He's God and he left perfect heaven to be born on a sinful cesspool called planet earth as a helpless baby in a cave in a manger. And he was worshipped by angels. He came down quite a lot. He grew up in a very poor home in a tiny country that was occupied and enslaved by Romans. During his itinerant ministry, he was usually homeless. He said, the foxes have places to lay their heads, the Son of Man has no place. He always put the needs of others ahead of his own. He often ministered in the state of exhaustion, and he was usually rejected by the very people he came to love. Even though pure and innocent, Jesus endured six illegal trials, 
suffered torture and crucifixion, died the death of a criminal to pay the sins for all of those who would believe in him. His love was more than just thinking or just talking. It was action. His humble sacrificial love, dying in our place to pay for our sins, enduring God's infinite wrath, that's the standard by which he expects us to love each other. Paul writes the same thing in Philippians 4.13. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he says, he came all the way down from heaven, emptied himself, etc. See, love can only be expressed through humility. Have you ever noticed that pride cannot love? That proud people are worthless at love? Proud people don't serve. Proud people want to be served, right? Love is all about others. Love is never about self. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Love does not seek its own. In other words, love is not looking in the mirror. Love is looking at benefiting others. It's other-centered. It means putting the needs of others before yourself. So Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. They'll recognize it if you have love for one another. He didn't say, by this you will become my disciples, right? You become a disciple of Christ by grace through faith, and that's a gift of God. But love is not the means of following Jesus. It's the badge. It's the badge. Your love is the insignia. It's the badge you wear that says, I belong to Jesus, and the love that I express toward my brothers and sisters in Christ is the visible manifestation that the love of Jesus Christ is in my life. It's characterized by the reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So all disciples are known by the characteristics that imitate their master. Think about it. What are the disciples of Moses known for? Well, law-keeping and circumcision, right? That's what they did. The disciples of the Pharisees were known by the phylacteries, you know, the little boxes they'd tie to their head and their arm sleeves, and they'd carry those around, right? John the Baptist's disciples were known by their baptizing, right? Genuine followers of Jesus are known by their supernatural agape love, because that's what Jesus is known for. Now, we're not talking about sloppy agape. We're not talking about serpy sentimentality. We're talking about sacrificial, humble love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Loving like Jesus means caring. It's not just talking. It means involvement. First Thessalonians, Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church, and he says, we prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you have become very dear to us. You get the picture? That's tender. That's costly. That's not convenient. That's investment. Jesus' love is not only tender, it's also tenacious, right? By the way, Paul just didn't give people the gospel. He gave them himself. He gave them his energy. He gave them his time. By the way, if you want to know how to spell love, T-I-M-E. It's not 
honey, you were always on my mind. It's, I was here, and you have my time and my heart and my caring and my sacrifice. That's what love does. It's interesting that loving like Jesus loved is not optional. Jesus said, a new suggestion I give you. You know, I have, I have a word of advice for you. You will never hear God ever say advice, suggestion. You know, you might want to think about this. Whenever God speaks, he speaks with authority because he's God. This is a command. He says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another like I have loved you. Now, I've got some good news for you about commands. When God commands you to do something, it means you can do it. It's possible. Because God will always give you the power to obey whatever he commands. I know you look at this and going, sacrificial, humble, selfless love. Um, I don't have it in me. You're right. You don't. But if he commands it, he will give you the desire and the power to love like Jesus loves. Without the indwelling Holy Spirit, this kind of love is impossible because our old nature is narcissistic. You ever known narcissists? It's all about them. It's not about you. Our old nature is bad to the bone. Our sinful gene pool is a cesspool. That's who we are without Christ, right? That's our heart. However, believers in Jesus have been given the ability to love like he loved because the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. Romans 5.5 says, hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Everyone who is a child of God, at the moment you come to faith in Christ, receives God himself, third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, comes and takes up residence in our heart. And the Holy Spirit is the source of God's life and God's love. And the fruit of the Spirit, you know the nine, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The first one is love. And it says, pour it out. Have we ever thought about how God pours out his love within our hearts? You know, when God pours out his love in your heart, he is not stingy. He doesn't drip it on you. He pours it on you like a five-gallon bucket dumped out on an ant. I mean, there's a lot of excess water there, right? It's like the Niagara Falls in the desert. The love of God is infinite. It's immeasurable. So you can't say, well, Lord, I can't love because you didn't give me enough. Are you kidding? He's poured the Niagara Falls of love in your life. The Holy Spirit, God himself, lives in you. You've got the capacity, and he's going to give you the desire as well. It's unconditional, it's merciful, it's forgiving, it's humble, it's sacrificial. So you say, well, if I've got the capacity through the Holy Spirit, how do I tap into that so I can love like Jesus loved? Well, you might start by just obeying the commandment, Right? obeying the commandment. He commanded to do it. If you do not surrender yourself to Jesus every day, you will not have the power to love like this. We get up in the morning, the first thing out of the box is to say, Lord, you have given me this day. At least so far, I woke up. Does not that surprise some of you? 
I mean, the way you went to bed, you too should be surprised that you woke up. And the fact is, sometimes he lets you hurt and ache in places just so it proves you're alive. You go, I must be alive. I hurt. Yeah, no kidding. That means you're alive, right? You know that muscle group you didn't know you had? Now you know where it is. That's the love of God, right? So we surrender to the Lord immediately. Say, Lord, this day is your day. You've given me it as a gift. Fill me with your spirit. Cleanse me from my self-centered little piggishness because I'm not going to give unless you teach me to give today. And when you surrendered yourself to Jesus every morning, ask him to fill you with his love. Lord, I'm going to run into so-and-so today, and I really don't want to love them. I want to spit on them. But I know that you want me to love them, and you're going to have to teach me. And I'm willing. I surrender my selfish little heart to you and ask you to teach me to love this schmuck. Right? That's what you do. And he will give you the capacity to do that. But without that surrender, you're depending on yourself. That's what Peter did. Verse 36, Jesus said, Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter sounds like your children. He says, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Here's the principle. A committed Christian depends upon Christ for everything and not themselves. A committed Christian depends on Christ for everything and not themselves. So Pete, Jesus just says, I'm going away. Peter didn't want to be separated from the Lord. He loved him. He thought he was going someplace else on earth. He said, well, if you're going to go up to Galilee, why can't I go there, right? In a new geographic location. He's talking about going to heaven. And the disciples are not getting at this at this point in time. You know, when, he, when they go out to the Mount of Olives just before Jesus ascends into heaven, they say, are, are you going to establish your earthly kingdom now? Now? Are you going to take over Rome now? He says, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to heaven. I'm ascending, right? So they're still thinking earthly. They're not thinking spiritual, heavenly. So Peter thinks that maybe Jesus is going someplace dangerous. And that's why he says, you can't follow me because where I'm going is dangerous. So he says, Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. I mean, he's got great courage, but his courage, his confidence is in himself. You know, when the Lord says, you can't follow me now, and you say, why can't I follow you right now? You're really contradicting Jesus. You're basically saying, I know better than you do. Lord, Lord means master. You know, master, I know better than you do, right? It's interesting is we don't often think about what's going on behind the scenes. That same night, Passover meal, Luke 22 records that Jesus tells Peter, quote, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go to both the prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Here's the principle. God allows our lives to be turned upside down and sifted in order to teach us to depend on him alone. God allows our lives to be turned upside down and sifted in order to teach us to depend on Christ alone. Now, when Jesus called Simon, Simon was his birth name. He changed his name to Peter. Remember, he said, your name is Simon. I'm going to call you Peter. Peter means rock. And it was Jesus' 
often gave people new names to reflect their new calling and their new character. He was going to get new character from the Lord. And you know, when you look at Peter throughout the Gospels, sometimes he lived up to his new name and sometimes he lived according to his old name. The name Simon means listen or hear. Very common name. Listen or hear. So in Scripture, in the Gospels, whenever Peter is acting like his old self, Jesus calls him Simon. So when Jesus calls Simon, that's a clue, he's in deep trouble, right? Because Jesus is using his old name because he's behaving like his old self. Now Jesus uses his old name twice. Simon, Simon. Has that ever happened to you as a kid? Your father, mother called your name twice? That didn't mean good things. That meant you were in trouble. He says, Simon, Simon, which means listen, listen, hear, hear. Hear what? Listen, listen, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. That should get your attention, right? Now, Peter was the leader of the 12. He was one of the inner three along with James and John. He's he recognizes sinfulness. He said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. When Jesus said, who do you do say I am? Peter makes the great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, he was a, a leader and he was a faithful man, but yet he failed. And many of God's saints have failed. Abraham lied about Sarah, his wife, and let Pharaoh take her into his harem. Boy, that was love in action, not. Later on, his son Isaac did the same thing, lied about Rebekah. Moses killed a man in anger and later on took credit for bringing water from a rock, which was a divine miracle, and so he couldn't get in the promised land. David committed adultery, arranged to have her husband murdered to cover it up. Solomon, the wisest man in the world with a thousand wives, that's seriously stuck on stupid, turned away from God and worshipped idols, right? Now, they all had one in common, prideful self-reliance. They trusted in their own wisdom to accomplish that. And Peter was trusting in himself. He looked inside and he said, I am courageous, I'll go to prison, and I'm willing to die. But when it became clear to him that Jesus was going to be executed, he got very scared that he might be implicated as one of Jesus' disciples and executed along with Jesus, and that fear led him to deny Christ three times, even calling down curses on the Messiah to prove that he wasn't his follower. So Peter didn't, even more so, did not understand the nature of the spiritual conflict was in. What did Jesus tell Peter? Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like weak. Well, that ought to give you some good feelings. Number one, Satan has to demand permission to do anything in your life. Nothing happens to you that doesn't cross your heavenly Father's desk. Nothing happens to you. Whatever has happened to you, God's already okayed, or it would not happen. Now, I know Satan's on a leash, and I can hear some of you say, can you get a shorter one? You know, I mean, he's on a leash, but he's got way too much freedom here at that point. But Satan had to demand permission. Jesus did not say, I've denied his request. God did allow Peter to be sifted like wheat. And when Peter looked in his heart, he saw a lot of chaff. The purpose of sifting wheat is to separate the valuable grain seeds from the worthless stalks and leaves, which is called chaff. So they cut the grain, tie it together in what they call shocks, and they gather those in the field, and they spread those shocks on a round wooden threshing floor. And 
oxen walk around in a circle over and over and their heavy hooves knock the grain, the seeds of wheat, off the stalks. And when there's a strong wind, they take that mixture up to a heel and they throw it in the air and the wind blows away the lighter chaff and the heavier seeds fall to the ground. So they're trying to separate the worthless from the valuable. The chaff is worthless, the seeds are valuable. So in order to sift wheat from the chaff, it takes a strong wind and you really have to upset the wheat. You throw it in the air multiple times. Peter's life was going to be thrown up in the air. And the strong wind of fear was going to sift and separate his life. Jesus was going to be murdered. His entire world turned upside down. And Satan's goal was to destroy Peter's faith in Christ. Satan's goal is to destroy your faith in Christ. He was the leader of the twelve. Think about it. If Satan could take Peter down, he could probably take the other eleven down at the same time. And if he could take the disciples out of commission, then God's plan to save the world was gone at the cross because Jesus was dead. Pretty strategic thinking on Satan's part. What he didn't plan on was a resurrection. Later on, the same night, a couple hours from now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells the disciples again in Mark, 20, Mark 14, 27, you all will fall away. And Peter, in verse 29, can't stop. He says, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same things. And Matthew 26, 56 says what? Exactly what Jesus said came to pass. All of them fled. This is the second time in about two, three hours that Jesus has said, you're going to deny me, and Peter comes back with the same thing. He repeats his boast, his confidence, even though Jesus already told him, and the rest of the disciples, they chime in, oh yeah, we're rough and tough and easy to bluff, you know. Peter contradicts the Lord. Jesus said, you're going to fall away, and he says, even though the rest of these people, these other ten, you know, they're a little flaky, they have no courage, even though they fall away, I will not fall away. I know me better than you do, Jesus. The other disciples, they might be cowards, but not me, I am courageous. I love you more than they do. Wow. Think he's got a pretty exaggerated view of his own capacity? That's what he said before his life was thrown into the air. And the wind of opposition came and sifted him like wheat. Many of us right now, our lives are turned upside down. Could be physical suffering, relational pain, uncertainty of medical diagnosis. Everything we thought was stable everything we counted on to be reliable, everything we took for granted, you don't take for granted anymore. It's turned out to be unstable, not predictable, whether it's people, circumstances, finances, health, whatever it happens to be. 
and the cold north winds of life keep blowing the doors of your house down, and you're disappointed a lot. Because what you hoped would happen and what you counted on happen is not happening. And Satan's goal is to weaken your faith in Christ. He wants to use trials and troubles to destroy your faith. And Almighty God wants to use the exact same trials and troubles to strengthen your faith, not to weaken your faith. He wants you to draw close to him. See, we know that Satan is the accuser of God's people. He's the father of lies. He's the master schemer. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He's a lion who ambushes and destroys people. Peter thought his battle was going to be with flesh and blood, right? His real warfare was with an invisible enemy, and he didn't figure that out. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, for our struggle, we are in a struggle, is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Jesus did not prevent Satan's attack against Peter because Peter's prideful self-confidence needed to be shattered. He needed to stop depending on himself. And for that to take place, he was going to have to fail. And he did. And God allowed it and arranged for his faith to be tested and failed. He would never be able to lead the disciples and suffer for the gospel post-resurrection if he stopped, unless he stopped trusting in himself. And Paul learned the same lesson. Paul got a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is, but it was enormously painful. He said, God, three times, take it away. God says, no, my power is perfected in your weakness. Don't talk to me about it anymore. I don't know when God tells us, don't talk to me about it anymore. I don't know. He might be. It might be his will for you to live with the heartbreak you've got. And he's not going to take it away. For his divine loving purposes. I don't know that. So don't take that to the bank. But you depend on him every day, one way or the other. At the end of the day, with all the suffering was not taken away, Paul said, I glory in my weaknesses because when I am weak in myself, then I am strong in Christ. You can't have it both ways. If you're strong in yourself and you're trusting your own self, you're weak in Christ. You have no faith. When you're strong in yourself, you're weak in Christ. When you're weak in yourself, you're strong in Christ. But Jesus did say, Peter, I have prayed for you. I'm praying that your faith will not ultimately fail the test and that when you repent, you will come back and strengthen the faith of the rest of the disciples, which he did. Read Acts 1, 2, 3. 1 John 2, 1. John is writing. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, the payment, the satisfaction to God for our sins. Now, an advocate is someone who stands in the place of someone who cannot speak for themselves. He pleads their case. So God the Father is the judge. You're in court. He's the judge. Satan's the prosecuting attorney. Jesus Christ is our defense attorney. 
Every sin you have committed in the past, you're going to commit this afternoon, and you will commit until the day Jesus takes you home and glorifies you, will not be charged to your account because they've already been charged to Christ's account. Paid in full, it is finished to Telestai. But our fallen pride lies to us and tells us we can handle a situation ourselves without dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. Humility keeps us dependent on the Lord and keeps us walking in his steps. Humility enables us when we depend and surrender him to love other people with his love. Here's a clue, and I'm going to close with this. When you catch yourself arguing with God, that would be a good sign that you're probably, you need to shut up (laughs) and submit. Have you ever had an argument with God? I have had a lot. You know something? I've lost every one. (laughs) And it was a waste of time, even worse. I've spent weeks going, oh, God, oh, God. You know, why don't they just submit early? Save yourself the heartache and the stomach lining, right? Why worry about something? You know, if he's going to be awake at 2 a.m., why am I awake at 2 a.m.? He's awake. He's got the universe under control. Let's summarize. One, a committed Christian is consumed with God's glory. means you're not consumed with your glory. You're consumed with elevating and displaying and magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, a committed Christian takes the initiative to love God's people with God's unconditional sacrificial love. There are millions of ways to show love to God's people. You submit yourself to the Lord, the Lord will show you what to do and how to do, and he'll fill you with great joy when you're sacrificially loving someone else. Number three, a committed Christian depends on Christ for everything, and I was going to say themselves for nothing. That's probably better. A committed Christian depends on Christ for everything and on themselves for nothing. And lastly, God allows our lives to be turned upside down and sifted in order to teach us to depend on him alone And that's where many of us are at this point. So trust him. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.